The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. Well, I hope you have your Bibles open at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, as we'll go through both of those uh, chapters today. And uh, some of you have already discovered uh, that those two chapters are about giving, but not really. But yet really. Well, how can you see? You just said two things opposite. No, really. This is, these are two of the most encouraging chapters in Paul's writings because it shows how he encourages others, why he encourages others, and, and he's got some amazing things to say to the Corinthian church. You have to keep that in mind all the way through to start with, to the Corinthian church. And he's using the giving, in this case, of the Corinthian church and others to encourage the Jewish church in Jerusalem, which is a very poor church. They're in the middle of a, a terrible time economically. Uh, the crops aren't working because they didn't have enough water, so there's a drought going on, and the, the Christians there are really in trouble, the, the Jewish Christians. And so Paul is raising money, or the, you'll see how it happens in a moment, from the uh, the Christians who aren't Jewish, from the Christians who are, are from uh, a Greek background. And his whole goal, and I'll say this several times in the sermon, is to bring together the Jewish people and the Greek people and every other type of people so that we're a one people group. We're, we're Christians. So if somebody were to say, and I wouldn't say it this way, but just to make a, a, a huge point here, if someone were to say, what's your ethnicity? Christian. Now, that doesn't say that we don't love all of the different ethnicities, but we are all to be one together, and, and we're, we're all equal in that sense. So I read in a conversation just recently in a book I was reading, and in the conversation, the uh, people in the conversation were talking about uh, John 3.16. And uh, they, were, they were both uh, theologians, and one of them said, really, here's the essence of John 3.16. For God so loved that he gave. And he said, mostly we should stop there and just think about that. God loved and God gave. And that's what these two chapters are about. You know, if somebody asks me, what's the most important thing about giving? God loved and God gave. And without both those things, it's not Christian giving. So as I've already said, the Jerusalem church, this is sort of the mother church. It was a Jewish church and needed funds badly. And the Corinthians heard of the need of the Jerusalem church and started a collection to help them. But the Judaizers in Corinth, we've learned all about them, those false teachers, tried to stop the Jewish Christians from taking such help. And so the collection had temporarily been put aside. 
But we learned last week that Titus, one of Paul's contemporaries, uh, that Titus had returned from Corinth with the good news that all is well between Paul and, and the Corinthians and the Judaizers and false teachers have been eliminated from the church. So it was Paul's vision to have the Gentile Christians, the Gentile churches, supply the funds to the Jewish church. So this is a great way to further break down the walls, and there were walls, a lot of religious walls, between Jew and Gentile Christians. So Paul now wanted to remind the Corinthian Christians about their desire to raise funds for the needy Jerusalem church and complete what they started a year previously. Now, Paul was not shy in raising funds, but he was also full of proper principles. So we'll start with something we've already studied, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1-4. I put it on the screen, and it reads this way. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, talking about the people in Jerusalem. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Now, what we're going to try to learn this morning is the principles behind giving. That's what we're trying to learn. So... You might want to ask, how much should I give as a Christian? You should give in keeping with your income. Well, what's that mean? You'll find out. But you should give in keeping with your income. And saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. He's talking specifically to their situation. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, uh, they'll accompany me. Now, there's a lot behind that. What's behind it is that they're going to have a fairly large sum of money, and there's robbers everywhere. They want to make sure that the people that are taking the money to Jerusalem don't steal any of it, and also that they don't get robbed. So Paul says, I'm willing to go to supervise, and I'm willing to go to even fight if I have to, if robbers come. So that's sort of what's behind that. Now, chapter 8, verse 1 reads this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, we need to stop there and look at the word grace for a minute. Grace. Why did he say that? Well, it's by grace we're saved. We don't deserve it. We deserve hell. We get heaven. That's grace. That's God giving God loved and God gave. God loved and he gave grace to all of us so that we can be saved. I do like the word saved. For forever in the presence of God. And so that's how he starts. He's talking about God's grace, God's love, God's giving. And then he says this. In the midst of a severe trial. Remember, the Corinthians are reading this and they've already raised some money. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, it doesn't go together, does it? Severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able. So how much do we give? As much as we're able, keeping in keeping with our income. 
So they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So they obviously deprived themselves of some necessities to be able to give financially to the church that was in need. I mean, what a formula for giving. Somebody says, okay, what's a good giving formula? Here it is. Severe trials, so we pray for severe trials. <laughs> Extreme poverty, and it equals rich generosity. And, and I, I, I left off something in verse 3. Notice what it says next. Entirely on their own, it says. In other words, their own free will. Nobody coerced them to do this. this. In some ways, that's my biggest point here. Nobody coerced them to give. And then in verse 4, according to their will, they, they did this on their own. They urgently, imagine this, pleaded with us for the privilege. Now, I have to stop again because the word grace in its various forms shows up over and over again in chapter 8 and 9. And the, there's an unusual word that's, that in English, at least in my Bible, privilege, uh, in the Greek underlying word, the word means both grace and rejoicing. So, in other words, they urgently pleaded for us for in their rejoicing and in the grace that God gave them and the grace and rejoicing of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And I, I wrote in my Bible, uh, I wrote the word willingly. They gave all of this willingly. Nobody coerced them to do it. And they exceeded, verse 5 said, our expectations, and they gave themselves, first of all, sounds like Romans 12, 1 and 2, they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God. This little phrase, the will of God, Paul uses seven times, the only place you find it in the Bible. By the will of God, the Lord, uh, first of all, the Lord, and then by the will of God. This was God's will uh, also to us. Now, now, let me read it again just so you get it because I've mixed it up a bit here. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. That's a picture of this one anotherness I talk about all the time. When we give ourselves to the Lord without equivocation, giving money is easy. Easy. Later on, Paul writes to the churches in Thessalonica, and here's some of his words in 1 Thessalonica chapter 1. It's on the screen. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message, that's the gospel message, in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now, all of you know, or most of you uh, are here all the time, you know that when we become a Christian, we receive the Holy Spirit immediately, and the Holy Spirit has fruit, and there's nine aspects of the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, and on. And so you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed uh, the good news about Jesus in the midst of severe sufferings with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. It's like, we're saved. This is awesome. And so you became a model to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. That's so awesome to be able to write that to a church. Paul was a great encourager. Now, some like to point out, and I've heard this more than once, 
that giving is a spiritual gift, after all. Usually, that is said in the context of being able to give less and not feel bad about it. <laughs> the Macedonians certainly had such a gift, if that is the case, and they gave above what was expected, resulting in grace and rejoicing. I can tell you that at conferences and lots of other opportunities I've had to be around other pastors, I have been able to brag about Calvary Chapel of Sarasota's giving to other pastors, and they've been encouraged by our example. Although one or two, one particular one in town, I won't mention his name, but he's a great guy, he says, we could never do that. We have to take up an offering or we wouldn't be able to survive. And I always tell them, in 35 years, we've never taken up an offering. We've done it for others. A missionary gets in trouble, we'll take up an offering for the missionary. But we just pray. Sometimes we tell the people if we have a need, but we just tell them, and that's it. And always, we've had everything we needed for these 35 years. It's really, it's, to me, it's one of the greatest miracles. And we're reaching all over the world, not just around us, which is just fantastic. So verse 6 says, so we urge Titus, Paul writes, since he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion in the Corinthian church this act of grace. Notice what he calls it. That's what is giving. It's an act of grace. This act of grace on your part. But since you excel, already excel in everything, and he makes a list, you excel in faith and speech and knowledge, that's the word for doctrine, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, Paul led most of them to the Lord and discipled them, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now here's one of the most important statements in the whole sermon, verse 8. I am not commanding you. I mean, that is, to me, absolutely essential. I am not commanding you. If someone, uh, there was, I, I remember one time years ago watching uh, a TV program, a, a Christian evangelist in another part of the world, and uh, I was always somewhat uncomfortable with him. He was very bold, and, but I listened to him, and he said this one time, he said, okay, we need money, and God has told me to tell you, you have to give to our ministry. If you don't give to our ministry, then all the evangelism in this part of the world will end. I turned off the TV. I've never listened to him again. That's not, giving isn't a guilt trip. Giving isn't a command. Paul's not commanding them. We get to give. We're not commanded to give. And be very, very careful if somebody says, you must give. I've even been told of a church. I hope it's not true. I didn't check it out, so I'll just say that much. Uh, but I've been told by more than one person that they, when you want to become a member, they want to know how much income you make. We don't want to know how much income you make. And, and I'm serious about that. This is, that's terrible. I hope it's not true. But Paul says in verse 8, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So notice that Paul is not using a Bible verse about giving with a number in it. And, and he could have said the Lord wants them to tithe. He didn't. He's making them face their motivation for promising to give and therefore compelling them to follow through on their previous commitment to give. And then in verse 9, he says, For you know the grace, there's that word again, grace, grace, grace. God loved, God gave, God loved, God gave. So you know the grace 
of our Lord, who is Jesus, who's the Christ, the Messiah, that though he was rich, now that's an understatement, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I mean, it's sort of like this. It's sort of like he moved out of his neighborhood, which was like better than the best neighborhood in all of the universe, to our neighborhood so that we can move from our neighborhood to his neighborhood. Isn't that a great picture? And this is a picture of the pre-existence of Jesus and the incarnation, that's Christmas and God becoming a man and all of that, and the cross, and he gave all for us, therefore it makes sense that we should give our all, like the Thessalonians did, for him. And when Jesus came, he was born into a relatively lower-class family, but not a destitute family. He never amassed any riches on earth. And when he died, the only thing that he had to give was his peace. My peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. Philippians chapter 2 shows this, his humility. Uh, it reads this way. Your attitude, in other words, the way you think, should be the same as that of the Messiah Christ, whose name is Jesus, who being in very nature God, he was God, did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, to be held onto, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, that's the word for slave, of a servant, being made in human likeness. He became a human being, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And then this is a shocker. In that culture, it was a real shocker. Anybody that really knows the Old Testament, it just reads, it's almost like a shout, even death on a cross. Cursed is anyone who is nailed to a tree, the Old Testament says. And only the worst of the worst of criminals ended up on crosses. And so he died for the worst of sins we could imagine, for all of our sins. He did that willingly so that we can live with him forever. And his resurrection proves it's true. What an incredible picture. You want to talk about giving? We first of all should be giving ourselves. That's it. Now look at verse 10. And there and, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter, Paul says. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched with your completion of it according to your means. It's nothing but encouragement. There's no coercion here, no arm twisting. It's interesting to contrast the Macedonian churches with the Corinthians. The Macedonian churches uh, in Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea were very poor, but they seemed to overflow with generosity and love, whereas the Corinthian church was much better off, yet Paul had to exhort them toward love and generosity. Nevertheless, he never twisted their arms. Now, verse 12 is the most important verse in the whole sermon. This is it. For the willingness, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. You must give willingly, remember, according to what one has. I don't know how many times we have to say it to make sure we understand it. Not according to what one does not have. Now, that's really important. 
The willingness is there. The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now, the key word here is the word acceptable. It literally means approved by God. So the principle is that we give willingly according to our means and without any regrets that we didn't have more. Uh, To quote John Calvin, he wrote, if you offer a small gift from your slender resources, your intention, intention is just as valuable in God's eyes as if a rich man had made a large gift out of his abundance. Now look at verse 13. We'll do a few verses. Our desire, Paul writes, is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed. That's not the idea. But that there might be equality. Now be careful with the word equality. It's not talking about a Christian socialism. So our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. Verse 15, as it is written, this is an Old Testament quote, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Now, all of them would have known what he was talking about. There would have been no explanation at all. It's uh, talking about the Exodus. It's talking about the fact that Moses uh, was used to have the people released from slavery into the wilderness through the Red Sea where Pharaoh uh, drowned along with his chariots and his whole army and all of that. And then you've got these huge numbers of people, uh, maybe even a couple of million people in in the desert, and you have to feed them. And so we all know, you know the phrase, manna came down from heaven. And it came down every day, and they had to pick up the manna. So we look at Exodus chapter 16. It reads this way. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, just a measurement, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And then Moses said to them, and this is really important, no one is to keep any of it until morning. In other words, God is going to take care of you completely. You'll always have as much as you need. God always supplies our needs. That's said over and over again from Genesis to the Revelation. Every day, God will take care of us. We never have anything to worry about. So there's no idea here, none of everyone being equally poor or equally rich. The idea is that we will all have exactly what God knows we need as we pass through this short time on earth and arrive in heaven. There's even a good verse for it in the book of Romans, as usual. Romans 8.32 says, Since God did not spare even his own son, that's the cross, but gave him up for us all, this this just makes good sense. Good logic. Won't God who gave us Christ also give us everything else? Of course he will. This is a picture of what I call, again, one anotherness. When we have more than we need, we'll be able to help those who don't have enough, and then they'll have all they need, and we will find ourselves in the future sometime in need, and they can supply our need. That's the way the body of Christ, the church, is supposed to work. 
During the Exodus, the deliverance from Egyptian slavery, God supernaturally supplied manna from heaven every day. Now during our present deliverance from slavery of sin, you realize we're slaves. The book of Romans underlines it in chapter 6 especially. We are slaves to our sin nature. We cannot go through life without sinning. And when we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the cross and the resurrection, we now have dominion over that slave, that, that desire to sin, and we no longer have to sin. Now, we still have a sin nature, and we still will sin. Hopefully, we'll sin less and less as we grow spiritually, but we'll be forgiven. We've already been forgiven of all of our sins on an ongoing basis. We need to be good, good repenters, and God will still love us even though we still sin. And so now during our present deliverance from the slavery of sin into the church, the body of Christ, Christians who are now, we're now the, uh, the dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we meet together like this in a different way, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can learn things here we can't learn even on our own. And so, uh, so we... Uh, are used of God, we're used of God to supply all our needs as we travel home together during our short pilgrimage on earth. God will always supply everything we need. Therefore, giving is an expression, an evidence of the grace of God in our lives as we give ourselves totally to Jesus first. Now look at verse 16. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. It tells us something about how Paul dealt with those that were sort of around him. Uh, you could say that he's sort of the boss and they're the, the employee, but it wasn't really like that. Uh, it, I, Titus wanted to do this, and Paul was excited about that. And verse 18 says, And we're sending along with Titus the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Now, who's that brother? We don't know, but uh, Paul doesn't say. He knew they knew, and uh, he wasn't writing to us. Well, here we are, but he could have. I, I mean, I would love to somehow go back in time and say, Paul, everything you're writing is going to be read 2,000 years from now by people. And he would have just laughed. He wouldn't have believed it. What is more, he was chosen, this man, by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering because probably somebody they really knew, lots of integrity, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. Verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but in the eyes of everyone, of man. J.B. Phillips in his Bible translates it a little more helpfully this way. Naturally, we want to avoid the slightest breath of criticism in the distribution of their gifts and to be absolutely above board only in the sight of God, not only in the sight of God, but in the eyes of men. So he's talking about integrity. And I, could, I, I, I wouldn't even do it, but I could list more than I'd like to think of uh, uh, church leaderships or pastors 
who have taken advantage of the money that comes into the church for their own benefit. Paul's making sure that there's nothing like that's going to happen. Now look at verse 22. In addition, we're sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous. Now, they definitely knew who this was. Uh, we don't. There's all kinds of guesses. They're not even worth mentioning. Uh, zealousness was a big deal with Paul. Uh, 1211, think of 1211, chapter 12, verse 11 of the book of Romans, where he tells us that we must continue to be zealous. I like the word. We're to be zealous. This man was zealous. And we're to be zealous no matter how little or long we've been Christians. We're to be zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ. So in addition, we're sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even uh, more so because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representative of the churches and an honor to Christ. It really means the way that it really means the churches they are part of are representative and an honor for Christ. Therefore, verse 24 Show these three men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it because they'll go back to their churches. What we're seeing here is grace giving. Grace giving is not limited by a tithe or by circumstances, but is motivated by love for God and one another love in the body of Christ. Paul did not see anything wrong with asking people to give to make a commitment to give and to follow through with it. So he made the appeal to give, but he never told them how much to give ever. Now look at chapter 9. It's a shorter chapter, verse 1. There is no need for me to write to you about this service. The word service is the same as the word ministry. So there's no need for me to write to you about this service, this ministry to the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action, but I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. I love that. I, I mean, I can see him smiling, thinking about it. So it's sort of, isn't it? He's, he's saying, I'm going to be checking up on you, but I'm absolutely confident that it's going to be okay. So their willingness was still there, but they'd not completed what they so enthusiastically started. So in verse 4, Paul says, For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, he's got to be laughing in his mind when he's writing this. We, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and to finish the arrangements for the generous gift you have promised. The word there is blessing, generous blessing. The generous gift, the generous blessing you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift not as one grudgingly given. Now, some people only give in the church. I had all these statistics, and I thought I, I threw them out. They're pretty depressing, really, but they wouldn't fit our church. Uh, some people only give when they absolutely have to. 
This is caused by covetousness, which is the Bible word for greed. Paul does not believe the Corinthians are greedy, and he cares enough for them that he doesn't want others to think of them that way either. A generous gift here means one freely given. Proverbs chapter 11, 24 and 25. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Now, that, that, that proverb in those two verses is, is all about life. Uh, now, so Paul puts this down in verse 6. Remember this. Now, this is obvious. It's an agrarian economy. Everybody knows about farming and seeds and all that. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. That's just obvious. You put a few things in. You do all your plowing or digging up, and you put a few seeds in, and you get uh, a certain amount back. And whoever sows generously, puts in a lot more seeds, will get much more back. We'll reap generously. It's obvious with seeds. Then he says, each one of you should give... Or you could put the word so in there, what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Over and over again, giving is a free will thing. There's no other kind of offering but a free will offering. There is no other kind of offering. And so he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this word cheerful is wonderful. In the Greek language, with the right ending and everything on it, you, it would be pronounced hilaros, hilaros, where we get our word hilarious from. So he says, God loves a hilarious giver, a cheerful giver, someone who just wants to give. They can hardly wait till they get to give. Here's a quote. I don't know where I got it, but I like it. Since the manner of one's giving reflects the character of one's heart, there is a principle of divine retribution here. God gives back blessing to those who give as a matter of blessing, but withholds his blessing from those who withhold from others. I remember John MacArthur saying in a sermon one time, he sounded like he was mad when he said it, and, and uh, he just says, a lot of people don't give because they've been told if they give, God will just pour out the money on them, and instead he just gives them spiritual blessings. <laughs> I never, I've never forgotten. I can still hear his voice. Giving is not a formula for success, but a response to grace. God gives. God loves and God gives. Some were shocked when I said this previously. I got criticized for this uh, many years ago just for saying it. Here it is. If you're giving to the church because you just believe you have to, Stop giving. I'll even go further than that. Uh, well, you know, some people, I'm sure, maybe this is you. You come in, and you see the boxes. And you've, heard, you've been here a while. You hear me say it over and over, boxes in the back and all that. And so you, you, know, you put your dollar bill, $5 bill, whatever it is, and you go to your seat because you think, well, you know, I'm coming here. I guess I have to do my part and give. Uh, if that's what you're doing, if you're just doing that out of a sense of, well, I guess I have to, stop it. Don't do it anymore. Keep the money in and spend it at lunch or something. There are others that give because it's a good tax deduction. 
And so they figure, wow, if I give this amount of money, I'll get this much back in my taxes. Plus, it'll look really good when the accountant sees it. And if you're doing that, I urge you to stop giving. If that's why you're giving, just so you get a tax deduction. I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking a tax deduction. Uh, you know, that's fine. Uh, we should take advantage of every way we can to keep the money out of the hands of the government and put it in the hands of the gospel-believing church. That's fine. But if you're doing it just because you get a deduction and that's the only reason you're doing it, then stop it. And then when you become like the Thessalonians and you give yourself totally to the Lord, understanding his grace to you, then you'll want to start giving again. And it'll be totally different this time. It'll be hilarious. It'll be something you're really looking forward to. Like look back at verse 7 just for a moment. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. The Jews had two chests in the temple for alms, for alms. One was for what the law required. It was like a tax. And the other was a free will offering. Jesus died. We don't have to follow the law that way anymore. Uh, we, we're not being taxed. We have only free will offerings. Those who gave reluctantly, simply to fulfill a religious duty, were in danger of God's discipline. When someone gives with a grumbling heart, I would say that might be an abomination in the sight of God. That's why I say stop it and get right with God. And then, boy, wow, we'll have to build the pastor a bigger house. <laughs> Verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. God will cause all we need to be available for our lives if we generously give of ourselves, our possessions, our wages, even our savings that come from him in the first place. So if we sow generously, we will see much spiritual growth and God will supply all our needs so we will be able to give to others with a cheerful, hilarious heart. You've heard the phrase, haven't you? You can't outgive God. I had to, I had to hold back a little bit because I, that phrase is so true. I could tell you stories just about my life and our life together as Christians. You would find some of them hard to believe. I also could tell you stories of people in this congregation who I know well who have shared some of their stories of me, and it just leaves you stunned, stunned. You cannot outgive God if you're doing it the way we're talking about here. If it's hilarious giving, God will bless you in ways that you never would have imagined, and you'll, be, you'll want to talk about it. I've talked to Valerie. I've said, we should write a book about these, this and this and this and this and this, but nobody would believe it. It's so amazing. God really does take care of us, especially us as a church, as a people, as a, uh, as a family. He makes sure that we have everything we need. Now look at verse 9. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112 verse 9. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Paul's always using the Old Testament. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn, their strength will be lifted high in honor. This is a picture of someone 
who is giving and therefore has no fears because of their obedience to the Lord. Now, verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower, that goes back to that other illustration that we just used, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. Now, what you plant, forget about seeds for a minute. What you plant is how you live, how you live. And he'll supply and increase your ability to live, your ability to manage, your ability to be employed, your ability to do all of the various things that we do in life. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, of strength, of uh, educate whatever you need, and will enlarge the harvest. What a beautiful picture of your righteousness. That is worth giving to receive. God is our supplier. We can do all the scientific things we want with the soil and the seeds, but if God does not bless our efforts, then nothing will happen. Our paychecks come from our employers, but if God chooses to not bless the business, there'll be no employers. God is our resource, and if we believe that, we will be very generous of all that God so richly blesses us with. And then you look at verse 12, Paul writes, this service, this ministry that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And he's also meaning here, there's a double meaning, uh, people praying for us, but also people seeing what happens when we give. And we, uh, if every time, every time there's a catastrophe, almost any place in the world, but especially in America, a big storm or like in Hawaii and all that, if you ever go to one of these things or you talk to people that have been there, they'll always tell you about all of the, like the Samaritan's Purse and many, many other Christian organizations that have come and given themselves and, and done all kinds of things for free uh, to help these people regardless of whether they ever went to a church or even thought about it. So it's so rewarding to see the results of giving. And in verse 13, he writes, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Others here, not just Christians, but others who aren't Christians. And, but, verse 14, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace, there it is again, God has given you. God loves and God gives. God is the, the source of everything. I believe the best reason of all to give is to receive the prayers of other Christians. A person who gives sacrificially to the church is a part of that church. He or she is not a casual Christian in the church. Their hearts are there because their treasure is there. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, Jesus said. They pray for the people, and the people pray for them. And then the very last sentence. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I love this verse because of the word indescribable. The, the, uh, the incarnation, God loving and giving his son Jesus, is his indescribable gift. Now, Paul made up the word translated indescribable. It didn't exist. He made it up. And, uh, and I've taken the Greek word and made it into English, and I'm going to try to pronounce it properly. It would pronounce something like this, anakadikitos. 
He just made that up. He made up a word. Well, I made up a word. I've said it several times. One anotherness. And those who heard Paul's word understood what he meant by it in the same way you know what I mean by my made-up word. I even clicked on learn spelling on my computer, so I expect the word to eventually appear in a dictionary beside my name. <laughs> so final question. Was the collection successful? Answer, Romans chapter 15. For you see, the believers of Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them since the Gentiles, the non-Jews, received the spiritual blessings of the good news, that's the gospel about Jesus, from the believers in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. Now, this whole passage of Scripture is about one anotherness. We don't emotionally understand as much as was the case in Paul's day, but one of Paul's main goals was to bring together in Christian commitment and love the Jews and the Gentiles. The giving of money to the Jews by the Gentiles caused many in Jerusalem and other places to take note and hear the gospel and follow Jesus. So I end finally with a picture of how Jesus saw giving. It's found in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. I put it on the screen. And here, they're in the temple, and they're right where all of the giving is done, him and his disciples. Sitting across from the temple treasury, Jesus watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins, two lepka, they were called. They're worth less than a penny in our worth. So the two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, look at that, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. That's what Jesus thinks about giving. And I think about that woman, I've thought about it many times, I believe that woman was very, very devastatingly poor and had run out of everything and had these two little lepkas worth almost nothing. And she went to the temple because she believed in God. She had faith. And she went to where the giving was. And I have no doubt she prayed and said, God, this is everything I have left. I'm now I'm destitute. And I will absolutely stand here and say, I have no doubt, whatever, I can hardly wait till I meet her in heaven to see what God did, because I'll guarantee you that she was blessed enormously because she gave all she had trusting God to take care of her, even though she had nothing that she could do now. That's Christian, biblical giving. So let's pray. Father, Help us to be like the Thessalonians and give of ourselves first. And I, I really pray if there's anyone here that, uh, that doesn't, doesn't give for whatever reason, that they would see that this is an opportunity for them to have great life change. And Father, the amount, all of that stuff doesn't make any difference. It's all to do with our attitude. And I also pray if there's anyone here who has never given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ that they would do it this morning and that they would simply come to God the Father and say, Dear Father in heaven, thank you for sending, for loving us and sending 
in giving your son to die for me on the cross. I give myself totally to him. And if you do that, he'll pour out righteousness on you that will be overwhelming and you'll be full of joy like the Thessalonians and nobody will ever have to ask you to give a penny because you'll want to do everything you can to see many others learn what it means to be a Christian. So I pray all of that in Jesus' name.